good evening. Welcome to tonight's edition of Resistance TV. Uh, this evening, we're going to be discussing the importance of standing up to racism and apartheid, and also looking at the impact of the police crime sentencing and courts bill and what impact that will actually have on our ability to actually protest on those matters. I'm really pleased to be joined this evening by Tony Greenstein, who many of our viewers will be well familiar with, but he has a very impressive CV. He's a lifelong socialist and anti-imperialist campaigner. He's a prolific blogger. I think many people have read his blogs and he's campaigned against apartheid virtually all his adult life. In fact, from the age of 16, he was involved in the campaign against the South African Springbok rugby tour in, I think that was the late 60s, actually. So that gives you an idea about Tony's age. Tony's also a co-founder of the Brighton & Hove Anti-Fascist Committee and was a secretary of the local anti-Nazi league in the 1980s. And he's the uh, vice president of the Brighton Hove uh, Trades Council. Uh, people also probably be aware that Tony was one of the first high profile members of the Labour Party to be expelled after the being uh, uh, accused uh, as part of the, uh, the phony anti-Semitism campaign. But I wanted to start this evening uh, just asking Tony to talk us through a really impressive demonstration that took place against that uh, police and crime bill in Brighton at the weekend. I think Tony was anticipating uh, a fairly modest crowd of uh, two or three hundred people, but it turned out to be several thousand people, which is uh, pretty significant, I think. And it demonstrates, I think, that there is a real palpable sense of anger at the government's proposals to substantially restrict our ability to engage in peaceful process with threat, frankly, of criminalizing it with, with huge fines and uh, potentially up to 10 years in prison. Indeed, those people who uh, took down the, the statue of the slave trader in Bristol uh, would indeed be potentially facing a 10-year prison sentence now if indeed this bill goes through and those similar actions were to be taken in the future. So let's just uh, get Tony on the screen now then. And uh, perhaps Tony, if you could just talk us through that uh, demonstration on Saturday, what happened? And I believe that you spoke at the meeting as well. So just tell us, tell us take us through what happened. Yeah, well, uh, well <clears throat> I just caught an announcement on, uh, uh, on my email that there was a uh, gathering against the police and crime bill at the level, which has been the historic scene of labor movement mobilizations and uh places where we've driven the fascists off as well uh and i was quite stunned to see all these people streaming towards it, it was clearly in the thousands not the hundreds uh and i i joined my comrades uh, at the with the trades council uh and after there was a number of speakers black lives matter essentially uh from what i could gather though i'm i'm, I'm still not aware of exactly who coordinated it and uh, it was suggested that I should speak about my experiences having just been released from uh, Her Majesty's accommodation in Birmingham uh, as a result of an action against the Nelbit factory there and it, it was quite uh, surreal really because I, I started at about 30 seconds into uh, my uh, oration as it were uh, the mic was suddenly cut uh, when uh, people behind the scenes as it were decided that uh i shouldn't speak uh one woman speaking to the others described me as an anti-semite uh 
you know, being Jewish, of course, I mean, that, that that's a natural label that comes to mind. Uh, but I'd already announced to the crowd that I'd been just released from prison because I'd uh, helped to try and de redecorate Elbit's factories and uh, the crowd growing, grew increasingly restive and angry. They wanted to hear what I had to say. Uh, in the end, the people at the back, uh, having said it wasn't an open mic and so on, relented because they, they really didn't want to get the crowd and the march uh, against them, as it were. So uh, I did speak and I made all the points and I... Uh, I finished with the quote uh, of Nelson Mandela that Israel was an apartheid state and uh, we would not be free until the Palestinians are free. So it was a, and also, I mean, I, I began by saying, let's face it, the police are our enemy. They represent mm. the state. They represent everything that we are opposed to. And uh, we can be under no illusions as to what the police and crime bill is about. What, what do you make, Tony, of the... Um... What do you make, Tony, of the uh, of the way in which the uh, the sort of pro-Zionist movement have really upped the ante over the last sort of few years since Jeremy Corbyn became the leader of the of the Labour Party? I mean, you're a veteran campaigner, a veteran anti-imperialist, a, a veteran pro-Palestinian campaigner. How does this compare with their activities of say a decade ago? Well, that's right. I mean, the Zionist movement has started, if you like, to get its act together on a, a grassroots level, because I, I think Israel was stunned in 2005 when the Boycott National Committee came into being and there was a call for BDS. BDS struck at the heart of the Zionist project uh, of Israel. I mean, they could take criticisms, motions being passed at union general meetings and so on, but this was something concrete. This... This meant that people were serious, just as boycott, divestment and sanctions, uh, when that was adopted against South Africa, then the end of the, the road was clear. And Israel has devoted enormous resources and time and energy to combating it. Uh, in America, it's done its best to make it illegal. Uh, and various state legislatures have outlawed it and made, for instance, uh, your contract as a teacher depends on you opposing BDS. That, that kind of thing. And France, likewise, the Constitutional Court outlawed it until the European Court of Human Rights basically overturned it. So the Zionist movement since 2005 has started to get its act together. And that really came to a head with the election of Jeremy Corbyn. The idea that a supporter of the Palestinians uh, <laughs> could become a leader of the second major party in Britain was just unacceptable. Uh, not just to the Zionists, of course, the United States and British intelligence, likewise. The idea of someone who'd been part of the enemy within, as it were, uh, someone who's been on the record as opposing NATO, opposing nuclear weapons and so on, despite the pacifistic nature of Corbyn's politics, he represented to them a threat to everything that uh, they value dearly. So we saw what was really a state-sponsored campaign. I have no doubt about that. Uh, alleging anti-Semitism, uh, and I was uh, the first, but not the last, Jewish person to be expelled. And we see today, I mean, uh, dozens of Jewish people are being suspended and expelled for anti-Semitism. I mean, that's the crazy nature of it. I mean, it's clear to anyone. You mention Israel in a derogatory way or critical way, you're out. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, Zionism isn't a fascist movement. 
but it's working in many ways like the fascists at the grassroots to try, you know in the labor party and elsewhere to try and combat its opponents and one manifestation of that was at the demonstration on saturday in brighton as i say i mean i quite easily overcame it but uh it's indicative of the fact that zionists will often lend their support uh, in verbally to black lives matter as a way of negating support for the palestinians what do you think explains why people who would have been opposed very strenuously to apartheid in South Africa seem to have a blind spot when it comes to Israel and Palestine? I mean, is it because of fear or is it a blind spot or do they not realize the brutality and the reality of the Israeli regime and the daily life, the daily indignities for the Palestinian people. How do, how do you explain it, Tony? Because to me, it seems a bit of a, a conundrum, really, that, you know, particularly the Labour Party has been leading this charge against, well, people like yourself and, and, and many others. I mean, obviously, as you know, I'm similarly, you know, a victim of those appalling allegations, partly because I stood up for people like yourself and said, these people are long-standing anti-racist, how dare you? labeled them and uh, smear them in that way and then obviously they went for me in the end but um, how do you explain that though what i mean th th that blind spot that seems to exist with, within so many people inside the labor party and indeed other political parties as well it's interesting i know i know that uh, caroline lucas i think you blogged about it actually blocked um uh, which was a welcome step i think from the green party were looking to um basically oppose, as I understand it, the IHRA examples of anti-Semitism. But she found a way, Caroline Lucas, of preventing that vote from, from taking place. But again, you know, it seems odd because she would have been, I think, one of those individuals, had she been around at the time of apartheid in South Africa, when it was just at its height, who would have been, you know, on the, on the front of the, uh, the demonstrations, uh, you know, opposing that. And yet, they seem to be very silent when it comes to Israel. How do you explain that, Tony? Well, there isn't one simple explanation. I mean, let us not forget, historically, the Labour Party has been, was also a party of the British Empire. And it was a party which connived in and supported, in essence, the colour bar in South Africa. I mean, it supported the Boers. I mean, that was considered a radical position, actually, to support the Boers in the Boer War. Uh, for example, so for a very long period, apart from elements in the movement of the colonial liberation, uh, I think we're getting a bit of interference, but that's okay, I'll continue. The Labour Party was never an anti-imperialist party. Indeed, it could be argued that the Atlee government super-exploited the colonies in order to pay for reforms at home, the National Health Service and so on. Remember, in 1945, when Atlee came into power, they were bankrupt. They had to have a $3 billion loan from the United States. So you can imagine what that's worth uh, today. So Malaya, the Malayan rubber, uh, super exploited. They launched a counterinsurgency war in Malaya. They did very much the same in Africa. So, I mean, the Labour Party and also the trade unions, it has to be said, were never naturally opposed to apartheid. It was only really after Sharpsville uh, and the massacre of black Af 69 black African protesters that the Labour Party started to fall into line. But 
I can remember in 1969-70 when I was on the streets as a 16-year-old opposing the rugby tour of uh, the Springbok tour uh, of Britain. I mean, James Callaghan uh, condemned us for, you know, for the usual excuses and said we should go home and so on. So, I mean, there was still that element in the Labour Party that didn't really want to take it on board. And if you remember, I mean, the BBC used to broadcast the South African cricket tour right up to the 70s. Uh, so, I mean, it was really only in the 1970s, uh, and you remember Peter Hain was the organiser in his radical days uh, of the, uh, those demonstrations, that people began to wake up. But why South Africa and not Israel? Well, I guess that South Africa is a black and white, or was a black and white issue. They had signs whites only, blacks only, just like in the Deep South. Israel doesn't have petty apartheid. It doesn't have in Israel proper. In the, the occupied territories, there are roads for Jewish settlers and there are dust cart, dust roads for Palestinians. But even there, they don't have signs saying it. The army enforces it, but they, they don't give you a propaganda uh, possibility. They don't put up the signs Jews only because they know what would happen and that people would draw the conclusion. So for many people in the Labour movement and the Labour Party and others on the left, it's been very difficult to grasp that Israel is an apartheid society. It, is, it doesn't have the signs that say you are forbidden to walk here because you are Palestinian. But what you will have is in places like Safed and elsewhere, the chief rabbi ruling by edict that Jews must not rent property to Arabs. It's not written into law. It's not, there's no signs on the lampposts, but that is what people do. So if you're an Arab, you can't, you will find it impossible to rent there. Likewise, I mean, it's not at first obvious to visitors to Israel that Arabs live, the vast majority live in their own towns which are constricted from expanding. There's been no new Arab town in the history of 70 years of Israel's existence. There's been hundreds of Jewish communities uh, which have been created in that time. So uh, there is a regular demolition of Arab properties which don't have a, a building permit. I mean, this is a continuing sore. And then you look at some of these Arab towns, they're literally surrounded on all sides by Jewish settlements. Uh, and in the Jewish nation state's law, it says that one of the virtues, one of the positive things of life is Jewish settlement. What that means is no Arab settlement. You, or you have a 93% of the land owned and controlled by the Jewish National Fund, who, whose aim is to redeem the land for the Jewish people, quote unquote. All of this is not necessarily obvious, but it's becoming obvious because even Betzalem, which is Israel's main human rights organization, formed in 1989 as a liberal Zionist organization, not an anti-Zionist organization, reluctantly came to a conclusion and they issued a statement, a very, very good statement, in January uh, of this year, which said that Israel was now an apartheid state from the river, Jordan, to the Mediterranean Sea, the, the old slogan from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. That is the reality. And they said 
there is an administration, a regime of Jewish supremacy throughout that area. It differs in different parts of greater Israel, but the overriding principle is one of Jewish supremacy. Uh, and Jewish supremacy is apartheid in anything but name. Let me say to our viewers as well, anybody who wants to participate in the discussion can, can do so, but uh, you'll just need to make sure that you're tuned in to the, the YouTube link, because unfortunately we can't see any comments on the other platforms that we're streaming on uh, this evening. But just uh, continuing with that, uh, that point, though, Tony, about that kind of uh, blind spot that seems to exist in, you know, liberals and... Um, and people inside the uh, the Labour Party, it's a it's a curious state of affairs, isn't it? That um, you know the the very people who are uh, well pride themselves on being strong anti-racist organisations like Hope Not Hate, for example, are um, you know an organisation which seems to be kind of leading the charge on the issue of uh, this bogus anti-Semitism. Campaign. Indeed, they 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 run a smear campaign against against me in the uh, in the run up to the last general election. I mean, it it just seems really uh, it's like a real conundrum. How is it that you know anti racist organisations uh, are actually seemingly in favour of another form of racism? And perhaps it's difficult for you perhaps to ask you to explain explain why that what is their thinking, but. What's your recipe for how we kind of challenge that and how we, you know, alert people to the realities of, of, of what's happening? And why is people like you and I, um, you know, stand up so strongly against the abuses of the Israeli state? Well, Hope, hope Not Hate and before it, the Searchlight magazine, the anti-fascist magazine, were both, if you like, sympathetic, supportive of Israel and Zionism. Uh, and they deliberately ignored Israel's connections with fascist regimes. I mean, you, you have the situation whereby Israel is supplying weaponry to the Azov battalion in the Ukraine, which is a neo-Nazi militia whose members deny that there was ever a Holocaust. Israel is seen, and this is obviously part of the problem, Israel is, see, is seen as a compensation to jury for what happened in the Holocaust. Uh, and everything uh, is subsumed by that. In reality, of course, Zionist relations with Nazi Germany at the time were, in essence, ones of collaboration. Zionism was always accepted, and, and people have to get understand this. Zionism never had a problem with anti-Semitism. Zionism took anti-Semitism as the natural reaction of non-Jews to the Jewish presence in their midst. So you and everyone who's not Jewish had anti-Semitism inherited. It was described as a hereditary disease by Leo Pinsker, the founder of the Lovers of Zion, a hereditary disease. And having been inherited for 2,000 years, it was incurable. Now, if a disease is incurable, there's no point in fighting it. You, make, you have a palliative, you make the patient comfortable, but it's a futile exercise in trying to combat it. So Zionism's solution to anti-Semitism was to escape from it and to set up their own settler colonial uh, land. Zionism has never fought anti-Semitism. And that is true really today as well. The real anti-Semites, they pay very little attention to. 
where uh, those of us who oppose what Israel does uh, are classified as anti-Semites. And that's very useful for the imperialists, for American and British and French uh, imperialism, to classify your opponents, not as anti-imperialists, not as people opposed to the Western order, but as anti-Semites. It gives you the moral high ground, if you like. So it's a very advantageous. And for Israel, of course, it has a double advantage because you don't have to defend all your practices. You don't have to defend giving vaccines to one section of the population who are Jewish and not to the other section of the population who are not Jewish, who are Palestinians. So what you do is you attack the messenger and say he's anti-Semitic. But in my experience, there are very, very few, I won't say there are no, but there are very, very few genuine anti-Semites who support the Palestinians. Today, people like Tommy Robinson, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, who told American Jews that Israel is your real home and your real country and that you're disloyal even, you know, all the tropes that they talk about, uh, they come out with this naturally. I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg has been quoted uh, in terms of the attacks on David Miller uh, and others, you know, but Jacob Rees-Mogg was uh, saying that it, his fellow uh, Jewish conservative MPs, Oliver Lethwin and John Burko, had the touch of the Illuminati about them, which is a secret conspiracy, which was wrapped around with anti-Semitic uh, theories and so on. These people are naturally racist, but at the same time, they all accuse people of anti-Semitism. In reality, when, when a Zionist talks about anti-Semitism, they're not talking about racism, they're talking about political opposition to something. So what they're doing is actually legitimizing anti-Semitism. They're making it respectable. That is the danger of these people. And Ken Livingston got, got expelled from the Labour Party for referencing an historical fact. The Havara Agreement in a discussion uh, with, um, uh, I think it was on one of the radio uh, uh, with Vanessa Phelps, I believe it was. And uh, he was ironically going on there to express solidarity with with Nashar, who'd been accused of anti-Semitism, and Ken was, as you'll recall, um, saying, well, she's not an anti-Semite. Her, her, I think he said her remarks were over the top, but, you know, make her anti-Semitic. And then he got asked a question about Hitler, and then he, then he referenced the Havara Agreement. And then John Mann, as you know, kind of ambushed Ken with a television crew in tow. And uh, the next thing you know, rather than taking action against John Mann's outrageous behaviour, uh, Ken Livingston was suspended for... For, for, out, for outlining an historical fact. And it's interesting that um, uh, Angela Rayner, when Jeremy Corbyn was suspended from the Labour Party and she was being interviewed, I'm paraphrasing what she said now, but um, I think the interviewer put, put, put to him, uh, put to her, should I say, um, what Jeremy Corbyn had said, um, you know, was accurate, uh, as it were. Well, she conceded that it was accurate, but she still said it was unacceptable for him to say it. So where do you go in that situation, uh, Tony? I mean, it's just incredible, isn't it? And I don't know what you think, but I, in many ways, blame the way in which the uh, the Labour Party responded to the uh, anti-Semitism uh, hyperbole and this kind of confected crisis uh, that they conceded to, capitulated to. Uh, and I blame that now for... It, it getting completely out of control. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, it was always around, as we know. But I mean, you know, the attacks now on academia, 
Uh, I think if there'd been a line drawn in the sand uh, back then, as I and people like yourself, and there was no other parliamentarians, though, because I was the only MP who was saying this, that we have to stand up to this. Um, and, you know, it's a very sort of slippery slope that, that they've, they've actually led us into now where, uh, you know, other people are being outside of the Labour Party being, being targeted. Because I think it's emboldened the, the kind of Zionist lobby. That's, that's, my, that's my sense. I don't know. What's your take on it, Tony? My take is, I mean, we're in a, an Alice in Wonderland situation, aren't we? Where, whereby something can be true, but it's also anti-Semitic. I mean, I was brought up to believe that if someone was being anti-Semitic, they were talking a load of rubbish. It was uh, complete nonsense. They were living in fantasy land, the idea that Jews are somehow uh, engaged in worldwide conspiracies or the, the Nazis' uh, international Jewish conspiracy that Jewish communists and capitalists were both conspiring to destroy the non-Jewish economy in order they take over the states and so on. And we, we have that in a different form today with the white replacement theory that Muslims are being uh, flooded into Europe in order to destroy the white European nations. And who's behind it? Well, it's the Jews. I mean, that's what Robert Bowers, uh, his head was filled with when he murdered 11 Jewish synagogue worshippers in Pittsburgh uh, a few years ago. He believed that behind the, uh, the refugee caravan that Trump was uh, lauding uh, were the Jews. Uh, and he therefore massacred uh, 11 Jews, the worst massacre in America's history uh, of Jewish people. Uh, and what did Israel do? It flew over its education minister, Naftali Bennett, in order to defend Trump from his critics in the Jewish community, because Zionism really does not care. In fact, uh, the leader of the Israeli Labour Party, Abi Gabay, his advice to the Jews of Pittsburgh and elsewhere was come to Israel. That's your real home. You don't really belong anyway. In which case, people like Bowers are actually right in, in, in what they do. So, I mean, you have all of that. Then you have the Ken Livingstone uh, affair. It's a historical documented fact, not only Havarah. Havarah was just one episode where they destroyed, the Zionists destroyed the international Jewish boycott of Nazi Germany. There is a whole Kastner affair, which I'm not even sure you will have heard about. A major trial in Israel between 1954 and 58, when the leader of Hungarian Zionism was accused of collaboration with the Nazis. He basically negotiated with Eichmann a train for the leading Zionists, mainly Zionists, but not, not all Zionists, the leading members of the Jewish community, out of Hungary to Switzerland via Bergen-Belsen. And in exchange, he would not only keep quiet about the deportation trains, but his men would, would actually reassure Jews getting onto trains to Auschwitz that they were going to somewhere completely different, that they were being resettled in places like Kenya Maze, which doesn't in fact exist. That trial, he, 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 in 1955, the judge, Benjamin Halevi, reached the verdict that Kastner had sold his soul to the devil. I, I'm quoting literally. That caused the government, the second Israeli government under Moshe Sharet, to collapse as different parties withdrew their support from the coalition government. It caused a major political crisis. The Israeli Secret Service, via uh, non-official agent, assassinated Kastner soon after. He was 
much too uh, too much of a liability to be allowed to live, uh, and it's that in itself is now being subject to quite searching inquiries because they believe that the assassins didn't kill him. He was actually killed by Shin Bet in the hospital when he was smothered with a pillow. Uh, there are very good reasons from the medical records to believe that he was murdered in the hospital itself. Uh, although the Supreme Court overturned the verdict, uh, in essence, that he collaborated, they did it on legal grounds. Not They did not upset or overturn the findings of fact of the lower court. Indeed, they said that, that he was guilty of uh, collaboration and that he gave testimony to a leading Nazi, Kurt Becher. But it later turned out he not only gave testimony in favour of Kurt Becher, which was perhaps understandable, I, I'll say no more, but he gave testimony in favour of Hermann Kroony, Eichmann's second-in-command in Hungary, who was in charge of the nuts and bolts and when the trains depart and how they're organised and all of that. A clear war criminal who was only convicted later in Germany when one of the leading anti-Zionist resistance uh, fighters, uh, Rudolf Verber, gave evidence uh, on his behalf. And, of course, the, the uh, heroism of Verber, who escaped from Auschwitz, to warn Hungarian jury of what was in store to them, uh, was written out of the record by the Zionists. Marek Edelman, the last commander of the Warsaw Ghetto Resistance. <laughs> no one, had he had a state funeral in, in Poland, he was a hero. But not, not even the lowliest clerk from the Israeli embassy attended, because he committed a cardinal sin and comparing the Palestinian resistance to the Warsaw Ghetto Resistance. So Zionism rewrites history and if you dare, dare, like Livingston, to dip your toe into any aspect of that, you are an anti-Semite. Never mind the fact that in Germany, in 1933, 98% of the German Jewish community was not Zionist. The Zionists were a tiny, tiny handful. Their collaboration, which was undoubted and real, they were the favourite sons of the Gestapo and Heydrich, who was in command of them. Uh, that's ignored. It's now assumed. That when you say Zionist, you mean Jew, which is itself anti-Semitic. As we know, uh, probably there are more non-Jewish uh, Zionists in the world, I suspect, than there are Jewish Zionists, maybe. But uh... It's my greatest regret that Jeremy Corbyn and those around him did not recognise at the first signs that when the Daily Mail and the Jewish Chronicle and all the others start launching the anti-Semitism attacks, that they were not interested in fighting anti-Semitism, but were interested in fighting any manifestation of anti-Zionism and the Palestinians. Corbyn should have stood up when, when this was taking place and saying, yes, I condemn anti-Semitism, of course I do, but I also condemn those who weaponize anti-Semitism as a means of attacking those who are opposed to the state of Israel and what it does. It was that failure that led to the, to the Zionist attack continuing and increasing. And we know that, I mean, Corbyn was meeting and his, his acolytes were meeting Seamus Milne with the Jewish labor movement. And we know the Jewish labor movement wasn't a genuine body. It was refounded in 2015. It had been dormant for years. It was refounded, had lots of money pumped in quite clearly by the embassy in order to create a wedge inside the Labour Party to remove Corbyn. And that's, in essence, what happened. But throughout that, uh, Corbyn did not recognise it. John MacDonald was worse 
because he said he was tearing his hair out about the anti-Semitism, which was non-existent. Of course, there are a few anti-Semites in the Labour Party, always have been, always have. I mean, you know, it's like saying because there are a few paedophiles, therefore the Labour Party is overrun by paedophiles. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But what you were suggesting there, though, uh, Tony, that um, your advice for what Jeremy should have done was precisely what I was doing, and that got me suspended. That yeah. was then used as evidence that I was a, what they described me as a Jew baiter, an absolutely outrageous uh, uh, calumny to throw yeah. against uh, somebody who spent their life uh, fighting, uh, you know, racism and, and actually defending Jewish members of the party predominantly that, that, you know, that were being attacked. And yet that was me being a Jew baiter. But Tony, just, I mean, obviously, the, the, you know, the topic of the discussion this evening is standing up to um, apartheid and, uh, and racism. And um, I just wondered how confident you are that we can, you know, encourage and succeed in encouraging the anti-racist movement to embrace the the need to to challenge Zionism, uh, you know, as a form of uh, racism. I mean, you've got a good reception by the sounds of things at the meeting in uh, Brighton uh, at the weekend. I mean, are, are you confident that we can that we can win people over, people who? instinctively ought to be on our side but for whatever reason you know they're maybe not aware or whatever and you know and so as we've said earlier on in our discussion this evening there's that kind of blind spot do you think there's scope for us to win the anti-racist movement over to the anti yes I, I, I don't think there's any doubt about it there's always been the kind of professional bourgeois anti-fascist around search like hope not hate etc who have formed an alliance for their own convenience for financial and other political reasons you know, you have someone like Ruth Smead, who was direct deputy director of Hope Not Hate. I mean, quite what that creature was doing at the head of an anti-racist group, uh, God only knows. But the majority of ordinary people, activists, have no difficulty today, I think, understanding that Israel is maintaining a pretty vicious occupation of, of the West Bank. An occupation which has been described by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Ronnie Casreels and others uh, as worse than anything South Africa did. I mean, South Africa never bombed refugee camps. It didn't bomb from the air, Soweto. Israel bombs refugee camps and then drops phosphorus bombs on schools. I mean, you really can't get much worse than that. So to most people, it's clear. It is, uh, I think, quite clear. But, but clearly when a mass movement like Black Lives Matter comes about, I mean, sections of the Zionist movement attacked it, like the campaign against anti-Semitism, but other sections tried to win it over by pretending that, well, Israel is not as bad as South Africa was, it's a different kettle of fish and so on. And some people will be susceptible to that kind of propaganda. Uh, and also, I mean, you, you do see sections of Black Lives Matter I think retreating into identity politics, which for me is a, a poisonous form of politics because it equates the oppressor with the oppressed. Everyone has an identity. So how do you distinguish by itself identity politics are meaningless? Depth at utilising um, identity politics and uh, uh, that was uh, you know, a very retrograde uh, period. But you, um, Tony, have described Zionism as, a, as a, just another variant of white uh, supremacy, white supremacism. Could you just perhaps unpack that um, for us a little bit? Yeah, I mean, Zionism is a, a movement of Jewish supremacy, but it, Zionism was also a, 
if you like, the last settler colonial movement in history. It came about at the end of the 19th century. I mean, uh, if it had been much longer, then it would have missed the boat entirely. Uh, but the supporters, of course, of Zionism dated back to Cromwell. I mean, non-Jews were far more interested in seeing a return of the Jews uh, to Palestine or the Holy Land or whatever they called it uh, than Jews themselves. It, Jews were the most resistant to the attractions of Zionism of everyone. It, it was the anti-Semites. I, mean, I have uh, a good quote, which I, I'll bring up. Uh, the British Brothers League, which I, I don't know whether people have heard about, it was the first proto-fascist organization in Britain. It was formed in 1901 by the Tory MP for Stepney, William Evans Gordon. Uh, and its president was a man named by William Stanley Shaw. And I was perusing the archive of the Jewish Chronicle uh, when I came across a letter that he wrote. And it, it, this was it. He said, I am a firm believer in the Zionist movement, which the British Brothers League will do much incidentally to foster. The return of the Jews to Palestine is one of the most striking signs of the times. All students of prophecy are watching the manifold signs of the times with almost breathless interest. I mean, uh, that was just one example. We, we, we see with John Haji, Christian United, uh, Christians United for Israel and so on, that the main supporters of Zionism are evangelical Christians who combine anti-Semitism with Zionism. I mean, John Haji is the president, uh, and he described in a previous sermon uh, Hitler as God's messenger to the Jews, sent to drive the Jews to Palestine. I mean, that's about as bad as it gets, really. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's shocking. It's part, part and parcel of it, really. Shocking. shocking. Nothing. Before Nothing. I bring in the one, just to kind of get. Um some of the reaction from our audience this evening, Tony. I just wanted you to say a little bit about Elbit Systems, because I know you've been involved with the Palestine Action Campaign to draw attention to uh, Elbit Systems, which uh, is uh, based not in the Midlands, I believe, isn't it? Uh, I'm not quite sure where, where, where the location is, but um, perhaps you could uh, just say a bit about Elbit Systems and Palestine Action's campaign. And obviously you found yourself being arrested um, for driving a minibus, um, of activists to um, mount another another demonstration against this this nefarious organisation, this nefarious company. Yes, well, Palestine Action is really a kind of group of activists who've grown up over the past few years, mainly because the mainstream Palestine solidarity campaign is really eschewed direct action. It's been a remarkably ineffective uh, solidarity movement, and Palestine Action has targeted Elbit. Elbit is the largest Israeli arms supplier. It has, I think, 10 factories in, in Britain, uh, not all of them in the Midlands. I know there's one in Kent. There may be other ones around. Uh, and what they've done is they've uh, climbed on the roofs, they've uh, smashed windows, used sledgehammers uh, to destroy uh, what they could. Uh, but I think most symbolically, they've taken cans of red paint which symbolizes the blood of the people uh, their drones have killed, and they've poured it all over the factory. Uh, and of course, uh, they've also locked onto the gates, so they've prevented uh, the production of weapons as well by those factories, causing considerable losses to the Elbit. Now, the police have mounted what seems to be a major campaign of attack against us, 
uh, and people have been arrested and charged with conspiracy. And conspiracy charges are, of course, quite serious. I mean, you can, I think you can get a life sentence for it. I, I, I'm not expecting to be confined for the rest of my life. Uh, but I was driving a minibus. I'd, I'd just been rung up. I'm not actually a, a member. I would say I'm a supporter of Palestine Action, but I was rung up by a friend. He said, well, can you drive a minibus with some ladders to get on the roof uh, to Birmingham and then drop off the people at the Shenstone uh, factory, which produces engines for the drones? So I, I said, yes, I, I had some free time, so I'd be happy to help out. Uh, unfortunately, on our way to the factory, and it, it may have been by chance, it may have been prior intelligence, I, I simply don't know, we were stopped and uh, we were all arrested and taken to a holding centre at Oldbury, which I think is near Staffordshire, held for nearly 30 hours, charged, uh, and I was sent with one other person to Wolverhampton Magistrates Court, where we were remanded in custody for a week by uh, a bastard of a magistrate. Uh, the other four were taken to Birmingham and they got bail immediately. That's the luck of the draw. But anyway, I don't regret it. It's a, an interesting experience I had for a week. Uh, Tony, I don't necessarily want to repeat it. No, I'm sure you don't. How was the prison, Tony? How was? The prison. What, was the, what were the conditions like there? Well, I was remarkably surprised because 50 years ago, I was remanded in custody, not for this but for possession of cannabis uh i was remanded to ashford young remand center where you had all white warders and black prisoners taken into reception were, were physically attacked you know they were absolute racist bastards the, there's no other description and there were quite a number of violent confrontations there uh and it was a pretty bad place but Winston Green was, you know, I mean, I have criticisms. You could ask warders to do something, prison officers, and they would never do it, or they'd say yes, and it never got done. But the food was certainly uh, okay. It wasn't, it wasn't cordon bleu uh, cuisine, but uh, it, it was certainly passable. And uh, it was mainly Muslim and black prisoners, and we got on pretty well. I explained, you know, I mean. I, one Muslim guy, you know, built uh, like the brick shit house wall, as they say, who uh, came over to me and sat down and said he wanted to talk about the Holocaust uh, and how terrible it was. You know, I'd, I'd already explained to him what I was inside for. And uh, I mean, my reception was perfectly fine, you know, and friendly. I mean, absolutely no problems. I think the major disadvantage of being in prison, which I felt, and I think that's something we need to take up, is that on security grounds, prisoners have no access to the internet or to a mobile phone. Uh, and I think in this day and age, to cut people off from the internet is to cut them cut them off from the world as it is. And I think yeah. that's got to be taken up. Uh, there are obviously there are security grounds, but they can be overcome. But people should have the right to use what is the world's largest database and not yeah. to be kept isolated. Because if you want to rehabilitate people. You have to start from when they're sent down. You can't just do it when they get when they leave the prison gates. So I think that is a major, major problem. Well, prison isn't really about rehabilitating people, and frankly, I'd close most, if not all, of them down. I think well, I mean quite, there are yes. many making racket now. Many of them have been privatised. Although I think Winston Green is is in the is in the public sector again. Came but, back into the public sector. Yeah, GPRS, I, you know, uh, but I mean, the vast majority of people absolutely shouldn't be in prison, and maybe those that perhaps ought to be there ought to be 
held in in, in a different environment uh, you know uh, treated as a, as, a, as a kind of you know as a health issue medical issue because it's often kind of mental health issues and things like that but that's a whole other debate and we haven't got time for that but let me uh, now in the closing moments just go over to sean just to kind of get some reaction there are many other questions i wanted to put to you tony but but the time has uh, beaten sure. us, so i'll just get uh, sean to tell us whether our audience have got any comments or questions for you tony yeah. Oh, good evening. Good evening, Tony. Um, and um, great to see a lot of our regulars on the chat this evening. Um, lots of people obviously interested in what you've had to say, Tony, and obviously your treatment in um, in prison. Uh, well, can we say prison? Holding place. Yeah, Remand centre, yeah, yeah. Um, but I do have a few questions um, about the topic tonight. Um, Faraz Khan says, there is a worry in Jewish minds of the threat of the financial conspiracy libel being used to create another Holocaust. Would the panel agree this is a psychological fact and trauma in Jewish minds? And do you distance yourself from it? Well, obviously, I distance myself from any conspiracy theory involving Jews and money, uh, because there's really no basis for it. But such conspiracy theories come from the right, not the left. I mean, the main figure, the main archetypal figure in these conspiracy theories is George Soros, who is a, a liberal American billionaire who was himself a refugee from the Holocaust in Hungary. And, you know, I mean, the, there have been some vile attacks on him, such as he was a Jewish collaborator. He got out at the age of 13. You know, how you can achieve accuse a young child of being a Nazi collaborator just beggars belief that people like Glenn Beck on Fox TV in America were, were propagating this absolute film. Uh, but if people have conspiracy theories, uh, I really don't want to know them because what's happening in Israel is quite clear to us. You don't need a conspiracy theory to understand the realities of, of apartheid in Israel today. So just junk all of that nonsense, deal with what happens leave the conspiracy theories to the right that's their natural home it's not something that anyone on the left who should have a materialist and class analysis of what's happening uh, should be uh, have a problem with uh, clearly zionism is a powerful movement an organ uh, it consists of a number of disparate organizations clustered around the world zionist organization there are plenty of conspiracies but Conspiracies do not make a conspiracy theory. I mean, the CIA, what's it there for if not to conspire against the ordinary people uh, mm. and other uh, revolutionary groups in other countries? Of course, you have conspiracies. The Israeli government is engaged in one long conspiracy, but conspiracy theories are a different matter. What it suggests is that a hidden hand of a few people are behind world events, and that is a very dangerous scenario. Uh, so I, I, I think we should be quite clear about it. As for trauma, I think sometimes traumas are self-imposed. It's, it's, it's interesting that after the Holocaust, almost no Jews did not discuss it. It, it wasn't prominent at all in Jewish or even Israeli uh, literature. In the first history curriculum in Israel, out of 200 pages, one was devoted to the Holocaust, and 12 were devoted to the Napoleonic Wars. It was not an issue then because concern with what happened in the Holocaust was seen 
are something the communists and the left were all interested in. For instance, at the uh, the memorial service for the Rosenbergs who were executed in America, uh, the song of the Warsaw Ghetto Resistance was sung. So if you were concerned with the Holocaust, you were seen as a bit of a pinko, to be quite honest. But of course, in the wake of the Kastner trial, which I've mentioned, Israel then decided it would capture Adolf Eichmann and turn that into what was a show trial. In other words, it adopted the narrative of the Holocaust and Israel was seen as the natural successor of the Holocaust. And that is where all of this stems from. And, that, and Israel, if you like, became uh, uh, the, the future Holocaust victim, as it were, uh, and never again was used as a slogan. Not to say that all racism was wrong, but only that racism against Jewish people was wrong. That's the lesson that Zionism has drawn from the Holocaust. It doesn't draw any universal lessons about how we must oppose all forms of racism, all forms of genocide and so on. Uh, and that is what, if you like, bourgeois history always does. It draws the wrong lessons from historical events and it's up to us to correct them. So we have all these Holocaust Memorial Days, you know, uh, so someone like Eric Pickles, Lord Pickles, who, who funded the eviction of the Dale Farm uh, gypsy site. Remember, gypsies yeah, were yeah. murdered and exterminated in this, roughly the same proportions as Jews. He sees no problem with being an anti-gypsy bigot. But of course, he is extremely concerned about anti-Semitism. But he still justifies the Tories sitting in the European Parliament without an fascist and anti-Semite, yeah. including Robert Zile from the Latvian LNNK, Father and Freedom Party, who marched every year with the veterans of the Latvian Waffen-SS, who took part in the butchery of the Jews of Riga and elsewhere. This is the, the, the hypocrisy that we're faced with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tony. Yeah, great answer, Tony. And uh, but I th you know, I think it's also um, incumbent upon us to to do to raise these issues in a matter of free speech um, and to talk about these conspiracy theories and and like you've just done, you know, address them head on and put people straight on on about on, on the facts of the matter um, and educate people um, because people pick up far too many conspiracy theories by watching things on YouTube and, and other, um, you know, vi video channels. Um, and I think I think it, it does need to be addressed. Um, and uh, your answer was absolutely, absolutely right there. Um, Rhonda Carr says, why didn't the Labour Party and Corbyn defend themselves from the Israel lobby? The Al Jazeera documentary was a perfect gift to them to use in their defence but it was never used to expose what was going on? It's a very good question. I don't have a terribly good answer for it because it's difficult for me to get into the, inside the head of Jeremy Corbyn and his fellows. I mean, Corbyn was faced with a hostile Labour Party, which was pro-imperialist. So he adopted the strategy of appeasing those who would not be appeased. And therefore, there were certain areas like Trident, NATO and so on that he didn't go into. And when all these attacks on anti-Semitism came about, rather than standing up to them and calling them out for what they were, he assumed they were made in good faith. So, I, mean, so, I, mean, I, I read the leaked report. You remember the Labour leaked report. 
And if you remember, it's on page, I think, 306, but you, you, you can search for it, where there is a message from Corbyn and his, uh, the leader of the opposition office saying to the, uh, the witch hunters, the compliance unit, we need to speed up the expulsions of Tony Greenstein, Jackie Walker, Ken Livingston, and Mark Wadsworth in order that we can rebuild trust with the Jewish community. Leave aside the question of who constitutes the Jewish community and Jewish stakeholders, whoever they are. Well, well, they did expel us. And did they rebuild trust? Of course not. They came back with more demands and more demands. And eventually, the only demand was, that was left was the head of Jeremy Corbyn himself. Uh, and now he's suspended under the same procedures that he introduced, the fast track procedures, to deal with what they said was egregious cases. In fact, it's every case to do with anti-Semitism. So it was a catalogue of mistakes. And my, I blame, first and foremost, people like Seamus Milne. He was a strategic director. He was there to outline a strategy. He was there to sit back and think and make an assessment. Now, it wasn't difficult. It, when I was suspended, before I was suspended, I was quite wise to what was happening. But after I was suspended, I was absolutely convinced this is an organised campaign. If you like, it's a conspiracy. Uh, we don't know exactly who's behind it, but certainly Al Jazeera showed the Israeli embassy. But it, that was just a snapshot, that film. It didn't show British intelligence involvement. It didn't show American uh, intelligence. We, we have fragmentary evidence now from what Mac Pompey said and others, that all of them were involved, and it makes sense that they would be involved uh, as well. But Corbyn never seemed to understand what was happening. He, he avoided conflict. In the end, he threw his friends overboard and appeased his enemies and ended up in the situation that he was. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, he should have stood up when Chris was suspended and then reinstated. And you remember Tom Watson organised that petition of 100 or so right-wing MPs and peers. Corbyn should have stood up and said, Chris is no racist. Uh, we, should, we must accept the decision. And Jenny Formby should have been told what to do. But instead, Corbyn apparently said, what the fuck is happening? Why did they do that? You know, it's unbelievable. But basically, he was eating out of the laps. Uh, it's very sad, but that is how it was. I had a conversation, Tony, with uh, with Seamus Milne, and uh, he acknowledged, he accepted that anti-Semitism was being weaponized. This was well before, uh, uh, you know, the events that that uh, that uh, consumed me. But you also mentioned John McDonnell, and 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 John McDonnell's attitude was just one more capitulation, and that will draw a line under it. He didn't put it like that, but he said, you know, we just do this one more thing, and that will draw a line under it. Well, and it's like they didn't learn from the light of experience. And I kept, I was pleading with the with the Socialist campaign group uh, and Jeremy to stop apologising and start standing up for yourself and standing up for the reputation and, you know, stop these attacks that they're making against, you know, these bad faith attacks yeah. against Jeremy's Praetorian Guard. I mean, people like you were Jeremy and me were Jeremy's Praetorian Guard and Sean, for that matter, uh, who was also targeted. The three of us on here have all been targeted, and there are many, many others out there. And they were all Jeremy's strongest allies, socialists, anti-imperialists, anti-racists. And you mentioned Mark Wadsworth. Uh, you know, Mark Wadsworth, who, who um, you know, drew attention to the Stephen Lawrence uh, case, uh, introduced Stephen Lawrence family to uh, Nelson Mandela. 
he was targeted and I, you know, I supported him and, you know, we saw the MPs led by Ruth Smith et al. Uh, going along to the disciplinary hearing to try and influence the outcome. It was a shameful affair. And uh, what was really disappointing was the way in which people like John, John McDonnell and, and others just simply didn't learn the lesson. I mean, you could maybe make an excuse or accept, you know, they try this approach once or twice. But when you've tried it four, five, six times and all that happens is it gets worse, you know, you're going to think, God, what are you doing? You know, well, Corbyn, got, Corbyn just got into the mindset. And once you go down that road of appeasement, it becomes more and more difficult. To yeah, 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 no, no, yeah. absolutely. So but the, the campaign power. group, though, Tony, as well, that's a campaign group where equally uh, culpable, they could have made a stand. I mean, I kept saying to them, look, our job as the campaign group isn't to just slavishly agree with every dot and com, everything that Jeremy ever says. We need to be pushing them to go further, to create the space for Jeremy. And, and particularly on this issue, you know, they could have done that, but they didn't. And anyway, we've got time for one more question. I, I know Tony wanted to go in before eight o'clock. We have not managed to do that, Tony, but we will finish it by eight o'clock. But one more comment, uh, Sean, from, from our audience, and then, then we must let yeah, Tony Yeah, sure. Um, I, I was just going to say, maybe one day I'll be able to get on and tell my story, because yes, although, I never, although yeah. I never got suspended and I was never expelled, I was never excluded from going into, in, into any meetings, I, I have a, a very traumatic story to tell about the Labour Party and how I was targeted. Um, so, yeah, maybe we'll do that one day, Chris. Um, so the, the last question really is um, um, by Sil uh, Sylvia Bowston. She said, how do we get the message out when the media twist everything that we say? Um, this is the big question, I think, on, on everybody's lips. Well, we're doing it tonight on Resistance TV, but yeah. tell me. Well, I, I think that's right. We have to develop our own alternative forms of media, whether it's Resistance TV, whether it's the Word newspaper, whether it's the extremely excellent Canary website or Squawk Box or blogs like my own, we have to try and connect with people because the mass media will not do it for us. Uh, and when it came to attacking Corbyn, I mean, there was unanimity uh, about it. Uh, in the media, from the Guardian to the Sun, they all sang from the same hymn sheet, because they all know at the end of the day they're part of the same system. They may have minor differences, and they'll argue those ferociously. But if you stand outside of the system, then you're cut off. And the, I mean, the Guardian, which I used to have regular letters uh, appearing, but the letters page is now, I say, been Friedlandized. Uh, it's also come under the sway of Jonathan Friedland, uh, and it's a no-go area for people who are anti-Zionists. I mean, they have the odds letter in, but uh, the Guardian has changed. I mean, I used to write for commenters free, but that's no longer an option. So all debate in papers like the Guardian even ha has been ended in essence. Uh, and we have to face up to the fact that we have to communicate through alternative channels. And yeah. of course, social media giants will do their best to inhibit our abilities. We know yes, that. Indeed. Well, listen, thanks very much indeed, uh, Tony. Thank you, Sean. And thank you, everybody, thank this you. for watching. Uh, it's been another fascinating uh, discussion this evening.
next week at the same time, we will be speaking to people who have been in attendance at a rally in support of Professor David Miller at Bristol University. And uh, he's been targeted in the way in which Tony, myself and, and others have been uh, with this uh, confected bogus anti-Semitism smear. And we will be getting uh, a reaction from people who attended the rally. It's a crucially important campaign to defend uh, Professor David Miller. If you're not familiar uh, with this uh, campaign, just simply uh, Google it and you you'll see that there is a lot of information out there. And this really is important. A real line in the sand must be drawn here. We cannot allow the Zionist lobby to take out uh, Professor David Miller because that really will be a very, very retrograde step. This, I think, could be the beginning of a, of a fight back, but it's really important that we stand in solidarity with David Miller to actually push back. So thanks again for watching this evening and hopefully be able to join us next week.